Hey there, Lisa here. Welcome back to the show. Well, wait a minute. Some of you might be first-time listeners, so I think I should introduce myself. My name's Lisa Kiefoffer, and in addition to being the founder of Reimagining Grief, I have the absolute honor of being the creator and host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. My grief resume, as it were, is a little long for an intro to today's podcast, so if you'd like to learn more about me or the work that I do at Reimagining Grief, head over to www.reimagininggrief.com after today's show. So as I record this, we are well into season two of the podcast, and I've had the absolute privilege and honor of sharing dozens of intimate, vulnerable, and open conversations with grieving people from all walks of life, from grieving fathers facing the work of grief, to daughters who endured the long, slow decline of a parent with ALS. I've interviewed CEOs whose personal and professional lives were transformed by their grief, celebrities who are navigating grief in the public eye. I've talked with authors, thinkers, and filmmakers who have produced stories and pieces of art that are helping to break down the misconceptions of grief. I spoke with a young woman who's experiencing grief as she faces her own mortality in the wake of a serious diagnosis and a mother who navigated grief alone in the midst of this pandemic. I'm excited to share that I have dozens more incredible new conversations coming your way in Season 2. But today I'm choosing to re-air an episode that was originally released in October 2019. In Stillness Silences Our Grief with my guest Autumn Campbell, we explore the incredible harm and isolation she experienced in the wake of delivering her son Zion stillborn more than 19 years ago. The reason I'm choosing to re-air this episode today is that one in 160 pregnancies ends in stillbirth in the U.S., One in 160. And yet, I'm disheartened to see how little has changed in terms of the isolation and suffering so many women experience because of the stigma and shame and silence that still exists. Most recently, we all watched as Chrissy Teigen and John Legend shared the heartbreaking news that their son Jack died at 20 weeks. Over the years, we've heard from singers like Lily Allen. We've heard from actors like Keanu Reeves, who speaks openly about the grief he and his girlfriend Jennifer faced over the stillbirth of their daughter Ava. And yet, there is still such profound stigma and shame around this very real and all-too-common experience. Since the mission of my show is to change the narratives of grief And because I never want a single grieving person to feel alone in their grief, I'm bringing back this very important conversation. If you've experienced this type of loss, I hope you will feel seen and held in your grief. If you know someone who's been through this, I hope you will discover how to show up for them in their grief. Okay, on a quick technical note, you'll notice that my producing skills have improved just a bit since last season, so bear with me in this episode with volume and a little bit of music transitions. Not only that, you're going to notice something new when you listen to the rest of season two. This season, I have the honor of having music composed just for me. This music, the music you're hearing right now and throughout season two, is by the incredibly talented Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds. Okay, now on to my original conversation with the insightful and courageous Autumn Campbell. That beautiful, wonderful nurse was able to talk me through the entire experience. So she said, look at his beautiful face, Autumn. Look at his eyes. Doesn't he have gorgeous lips? Look at his cute little chest and his arms. Hold his fingers, Autumn. And she talked me all the way down to his toes so that I would 
she could walk me through acknowledging each beautiful part of his body. This is Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Autumn, I want to welcome you to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much for being on our Thank show today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It, just your work is so important. I wish I would have had access to you and your wisdom and your compassion when I was overwhelmed with grief. It would have transformed my experience. As you know, I often ask my guests how it is that we came into each other's lives, and Autumn shares the weird and actually, frankly, all too typical way we were introduced to one another. Oh, I, mean, to- I will never forget meeting you. We were at a local bar within a local hotel, and my first introduction to you was that someone in our group had grabbed my arm and said, hey, so you know, that's my friend Lisa and her husband just died. And I remember thinking two things. The first thought is, oh my God, that is so painful and unimaginable. And two, what a tactless way to introduce me on the side to your friend. And I knew that your friend was trying to protect you so that I wouldn't say something that was harmful. But it was a reminder of how poorly we hold one another in grief and how poorly we show up as friends. And so um, I knew to be careful with my words and I realized very quickly that I didn't have to be, that you were open and present in your pain, you were honest and that I was drawn to your light of spirit. And I don't mean lightheartedness, but I mean you have a shining light in your soul. And I was instantly drawn to you and wanted to get to know you better. And we did right away. Over the past eight years of our friendship, Autumn and I have discovered we have a lot in common including our belief that culture influences heavily how we see and show up in the world. Autumn shared how her parents modeled what it means to show up for someone in their grief when she was just a teenager. My first experience with grief that was so big and so overwhelming that I had no reference point, no compass, was when my dear friend's mom uh, died from cancer and complications from cancer when we were 16. And I was very close to the family, and I loved the whole family very, very much, and to this day consider them family. And so I not only grieved missing her mother, but to be with the family as they grieved an unimaginable loss for me at an unimaginable time was so profound. And I remember my parents actually saying, just go be with her. That's all you need to do is go be with her. And my parents took care of the rest. Like we skipped school. Like um, I just remember being in their basement And it was very dark, and we had Pretty Woman playing on the TV on repeat on a uh, VHS cassette. And she would just kind of fall in and out of sleep and in and out of crying. And I just stayed in the dark, cold basement with her. And because I wasn't adult and didn't have adultism behaviors, I didn't try to fix anything. So I didn't try to offer her to eat or offer her food. I feel like when we're kids, we actually do the best job. So I just sat with her. I didn't know what else to do. So I actually did what I consider and would have needed as an adult the best thing. I just was very quiet and present. And that was it. I just took my leads from her. 
That's such an incredible gift for you as a teenager and really for your parents to to set aside maybe their own instincts and to encourage you to show up and shut up and be by your friend's side. That's kind of remarkable. My mom is a nurse and she had seen and experienced a lot of death. And my dad uh, was a guidance counselor and they loved, they loved this woman dearly, dearly. And so they were hurting too. And I think that it was unimaginable for them too. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't their own daughter. And so they didn't try to fix anything. I asked Autumn to think about how those lessons her parents taught her impacted her when it was time to deal with her own grief. I also reminded her that she didn't owe us any details of her story she didn't want to share. And she reminded me that she wanted to tell her whole story because it's one that is so often silenced. I actually had talked to you about how important I thought my story was because my story is a story of having our stillborn son. And... Again and again, when I have come across or been introduced to other women who have survived the stillbirth of their children, a common theme is that they have no one else in their life that they have ever met or known that this has happened to. They have never felt so isolated and alone. They have never felt so guilty and ashamed and that they are in a way expected to stay quiet. And so I'll, I'll share that story. So in its whole fullness, so that if someone is listening to this podcast who has either experienced the stillbirth personally or has a loved one who has, that they can feel connected um, and not feel so isolated in their unique grief. My, I was eight months pregnant. And I, the pregnancy had gone according to the doctor's plan. Everything checked out and everything was really going very well. And um, I started to feel like something wasn't quite right. I remember being in a Lamaze class and every woman kept touching their bellies a lot and just complaining about how hard the kicks were. And I remember thinking, oh, my kicks are kind of light and I feel like they're responding to kicks more frequently than I am. And so I remember thinking like, mm. mine seems different. And so then I sat with that. I left the Lamaze class. I was out about doing my own business the next day and I was with a girlfriend and I said to her, I just feel like something's wrong. I, I just really have been thinking about this. I don't think something's right. And I knew I had just been to the doctor a few weeks before that, and I knew I had a doctor's appointment coming up in a few days, but I just, there was something in me that just said, nope, this is wrong. And I was lucky. I was with a girlfriend who didn't try to talk me out of it. She said, okay, well, let's let's not go to lunch. Let's go to to triage. Like, let's, let's go check in. So we went to the hospital and I told my story and they triaged me and they monitored our son uh, for a couple hours. I called my husband. He came and visited, met us up at the hospital. They measured him. They measured the fluid. They watched him. He was kicking. And they said, don't you see that? Like, he's kicking. Do you feel that? And I said, no, I don't feel it. That's what's done worried. And they said, no, no, no. Sometimes this happens. Sometimes your uterus stretches and like he's maybe positioned in a way that you don't feel it. And they dismissed all my worries and summarized um, my experience as I believe it as just a quote unquote anxious new mother. Even though I kept saying, I'm really nervous, I know something is wrong. And they just dismissed me as yet another new mother who didn't know better and didn't understand her own body and her own connection to her child. So three days later was my visit where you go in with your birth plan. So my husband and I had diligently sat down and created a birth plan, and he happened to get really, really, really sick. He was a kindergarten teacher at the time, and was super sick with this flu that had been going around and he wasn't going to make it. 
And just as I was packing up to go to the doctor's appointment by myself, which I thought nothing of, my sister just happened to show up to visit and said, no, I don't want you to go by yourself. And I kept saying, it's fine. It's no big deal. It's just a checkup. I'm just going to turn this birth plan in. No big deal. And she knew something was up. Just her intuition spoke up. And she said, you know, I really want to go with you. I feel like I should go with you. I just feel like I should. And so we went. And thank God we did. So we went together. And I handed the doctor the birth plan. And he said, great, we're going to go over this together. Let me first just go ahead and run a quick ultrasound. We're going to check his heartbeat. And I said, great. And I laid down. And he started to search for the heartbeat. And he looked really, really still. And nobody made a sound in the room. And then he looked at me and he said, I think we need to go to a different room for new equipment. Will you come with me? And I remember the dread. And I thought, see, I knew it. I knew something was wrong. And in that very moment before we had confirmed anything, I knew he had died. And so we walked down the hallway together, and he got a different ultrasound machine out, and he confirmed that there was no heartbeat. And so I honestly remember absolutely nothing except for at one point seeing my sister's hand on the steering wheel as we had to drive from this doctor's office to the hospital. And I don't remember a single other thing until I was in the next room in the hospital. I don't remember checking in, like nothing. Um, And I remember my parents and Phil, my husband, all came in rushing into the room at the same time because they must have held them outside the room for a while and allowed them back at the same time. And they brought a different technician and Mm -hmm. a bigger machine. And I remember just glazing over and everybody still was trying to say really hopeful things in the room. And I remember disassociating, which was a trauma response that I had learned early as a child. And I, because I knew, and I became very passive. And I don't remember anything else. At some point I was moved to an actual room uh, and the harm of the hospital was that they insisted on putting me on the same floor as the maternity ward and in the same hallway. And so I do remember begging and pleading with the doctors and the nurses not to put me on that floor. And they said that they had to. And I remember just demanding an answer why. And their answer was because it would be easier for them. And I just, yeah, Whoa. right? So yeah. the yeah. next thing I remember is being in my room, and I remember being induced, and I remember um, I couldn't stop blaming myself out loud because I was sure I had done something that had killed my baby because of the pregnant mother, it's all up to you. It's up to you to eat right. It's up to you to drink water. It's up to you to get rest. It's up to you not to be around people who are smoking. It's up to you to take your vitamins. Like it's all on the pregnant mother to ensure the health of her baby. And so because my baby had died and I didn't have answers to why, I was sure I had done something to kill him. And so I was just myself and sobbing and screaming and my mom being a nurse and the nurse at the hospital where I delivered our son, she looked at another nurse and says, doesn't she look really nauseous to you? And the nurse kind of looked at her in a very puzzled way. And my mom winked at her and the nurse said, oh yeah, she does. And what I came to understand was that there's a certain kind of cocktail that they can give you through your IV for extreme, extreme cases of nausea, but it will knock you out. And so my mom and the nurse in that Mm. instant offered me reprieve and a break from my grief and my, and my fear and my anxiety and my blame. Um, I remember them like, really, really 
not, I remember not being checked on very much. I remember seeing one doctor once and it was really the nurses over the next three days that attended to me because my body was not ready to give birth. It took three days for me to be induced. And it was a nurse who delivered my son. Um, and I remember saying, shouldn't a doctor be in here? And the nurse saying, he doesn't need to be. And I knew that the message was, because your baby is dead, we don't really need a doctor. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't it's matter. Not important. You're not, you don't matter. You know, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I remember being terrified at the very last minute as I was pushing and thinking like, oh God, I don't want this to be over because then it's really over. I'm not pregnant anymore. I'm not a mom anymore. And it confirmed I was terrified to see him and to like really have to confront his death. And the only word that I uttered was just the word mom. Like I just was just said, mom. And I delivered him. And uh, the nurse was amazing because I, like, was in so much trauma. I was in so much shock that that beautiful, wonderful nurse was able to talk me through the entire experience. So she said, look at his beautiful face, Autumn. Look at his eyes. Doesn't he have gorgeous lips? Look at his cute little chest and his arms. Hold his fingers, Autumn. And she talked me all the way down to his toes so that I would, she could walk me through acknowledging each beautiful part of his body. And then after we all had a chance to be with him and to hold him, then the incompetence of the hospital, the harm of the hospital, he enters the room. And they said... If you want to know why your son died, we have to perform an autopsy. And if we perform an autopsy on your son, you have to sign his body away. We will not give him back to you to be buried or to be cremated. And I remember being so deaf. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Lisa. No, I'm just still in such shock mm -hmm. about that process as, as you and I have talked about. I'm sorry, oh, yeah. please I mean, continue. Just, again, the purposeful harm. There are things that the hospital did that are based, that were accidental and just based on incompetence, but there was purposeful neglect and harm for the ease and convenience of the hospital so that I understood that I desperately wanted to know why my baby died. And I understood that the implication was is that when they were done with him, that they were going to put him in the hospital incinerator. And I, I had no choice. I mean, what was my choice? Uh, for me, I know other people would have yeah. made different choices, but I felt like I had no choice. Um, so we said goodbye, and he went uh, into another room in case I wanted to revisit him. And so my sister actually took that opportunity to sit in the other room with him. And that wonderful, beautiful mm -hmm. nurse knew well enough and had enough on her heart to wrap him in a blanket and to put a little hat on him and to set him up in a bassinet and to take photographs of him. And she sent them to me. I received them about a week after I was discharged. And I would have nothing of him. Nothing, right? Without the grace and kindness yeah. of that nurse. So, um, yeah. Incredible. What an incredible, yeah. insightful yeah. gift that she was in that yeah. moment in your life. I was able to see her again. I have two nieces. One is 14. Um and one was turning eight next week. And when my youngest niece was born, I was able to be there for both my nieces' birth. And this woman walks in to help with my, my niece's delivery. And I looked at her. And oh she goodness. saw me. And I saw her. I don't know how she recognized me. Right? She sees so many mothers. And I said, oh, my God, it's you. And she said, I can't believe it's you. And we just hugged and held each other. And I told her, I was so grateful that I had the opportunity to say, you changed my life. 
I'm so grateful for you. Like, and I was able to tell her all the ways that she saved me. Autumn's story shines a spotlight on the ways institutions, practices, and our broader culture can cause unnecessary and frankly just cruel harm. From the requirement to remain on the maternity floor for days, waiting to deliver her stillborn son because it was more convenient for the medical staff, to the impossible decision to give up the right to bury her son in order to find out what caused his death, the system failed her. The last, uh, you know, I was raised Irish Catholic, so the last sin uh, of the hospital was discharge. So I had begged uh, the several days that I was in the hospital to see a social worker, begged and pleaded everybody who came into my room, but yes, but can you get me a social worker? Yes, but I'm not here for that. I'm here for you to sign the death certificate. Yes, but can you get me a social worker? I'm just here to change your IV. Yes, but can I see a social worker, right? Like, it didn't matter, and I was denied a social worker over the five days that I was there again and again. And they discharged me without a plan and no one ever followed up with me. That was it. They gave me a box. It was purple. I hate that fucking box to, that said like what to do when, with a loss of an infant. I don't even know, like some shitty pamphlet and like some right. crappy box, yeah. like some other crap in it, like just horrible shit. And then I was in so much grief that I couldn't even walk. Like my body had just was in so much trauma and in so much um, shock that they had a and, pain. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I was wheelchair down the hall past all of the crying babies, past all of the mothers who, by the way, I had heard crying babies all day and all night while I was um, either laboring with delivering or grieving my dead son. Um, and was my mom and I, she, my husband went to go get the car. My mom and I stopped at the elevator and a new family walked up to the elevator with their beautiful, healthy infant. And I just remember thinking, this has got to be one of the cruelest things I have ever experienced. You as a hospital basically did this on purpose. Like this is pure neglect. Um, And my mom just said, yep, we'll get the next one. And I remember thinking like, well, God, while we wait for the next one, like how many elevators are we going to wait for? Right. Another family might come. So anxious to get out of the hospital fast enough. Uh, And then I went home with nothing, right? Like I went home with no baby and my body told me all the ways that I didn't have a baby because it knew it had delivered a baby. And so um, we at that point decided that the name that we had chosen for our son, we were going to use, which was also really, really painful because it made it feel more real while we were in the hospital. I couldn't utter his name because it just seemed like it would exasperate, uh, exasperate the loss. And so we started to call him by his name and his name is Zion Shea. And so uh, my body knew that I had delivered Zion and but it didn't know that he didn't live and so my milk came in which was excruciatingly painful because there was no infant to help with it um and so my mom being an old school nurse knew to take cabbage leaves and wet them and put them in the freezer and then bind them to my chest again and again for several days until the milk dried up and I ended up with a very common syndrome for anyone who has lost a uh, baby, um, which is called empty arm syndrome, where my arms actually ached. And I know that's biology's way of telling you to pick up your baby. And so they hurt and ached, mm. and it was so also very, very painful. And so I really feel like there was some kind of like psychosis that goes along when your body is telling you exactly what you need to do, but you, your brain knows that that's not available. You can't, you can't do, do it. it. And yeah. so I ended up having, yeah. I had this big body pillow that I slept with. And so I just ended up sitting with the body pillow in my arms because it at least helped stop the arms, my arms from hurting. And, um, yeah. And then, um, 
I went into my bedroom and closed not only the blinds, but the curtains on top and crawled into bed for I don't know how many days or nights because I purposely didn't want to know that there was a world outside of my world because I couldn't believe that everybody's world hadn't stopped like mine had. I didn't want to know if it was day or night. I didn't want to see people coming and going. Going about their day as if as yeah. nothing happened. You and I have talked about that before, the sort of incredul- yeah. incredulousness that I feel and sometimes the pure rage, frankly, and the com- overwhelming sadness of the world going on people are talking and they're driving cars and they're shopping in the grocery stores and they're complaining about oh. bad hair days and the boy that didn't mm-hmm. call them back and and it's in the beginning I think I wasn't even so outraged though I became outraged and sore a lot not necessarily at people but in my mind sometimes yeah. at people but in the beginning I don't think it was so much rage and I don't know if this is for you Autumn I was like so acutely, um, what is the word I'm looking for? I was so in shock and surprised. Like, don't they know? Like, I I kind of felt like I was crazy. Like, how did they, did they not get the memo? Did they not see the movie playing? Did they not read the first chapter of the book? Whatever your metaphor is, like, how come they're not in on it? And and am I crazy? Totally and utterly stunned that everybody else's world hadn't stopped too. I, I could not, like, I could not fathom it. The Strangers, for sure, was a shock, I think, for me. And I don't know if this was something that resonated for you. It was more of a shock for the people who were kind of in my more inner, what I would call my inner circle, yeah. you know, when they oh, were yeah. sort of going about their days. And I was like, wait, why are you, yeah. how can you, what? You I, know, was, I was really grateful. I don't know how this all happened because, again, like, I was, like, in the shock place shock and denial and like nothing made sense I, 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 but somehow other people made things happen so my husband got I believe six weeks off my mom got at least a month off of work my dad took time off of work my sister was finishing college and I think that the, her professors gave I mean just because like they, they must have given her time off. I don't know why I've never asked her that, but like, or I don't know, but like time didn't make sense to me. So if she did go to class yeah. and I didn't notice, but, um, right. You might no, not have even like, known. They were just yeah. always with yeah. me. Like, I don't remember a day going by that my family, my husband, my mom, my dad, and my sister weren't with me until they couldn't be with me anymore. Right. And so then, right. but I was not given some of the grace that other people were. I was finishing my student teaching and I was almost done because I had like kind of crafted that I would be done with student teaching right by the time I was going to deliver, like, you know, somehow you can plan your, your due date or like your delivery day. And so I only had three weeks left of student teaching to, to complete out of an entire semester. And the, college, and I want to name them because they should be ashamed of themselves, is Eastern Michigan University College of Education. And they made me, they said, if you don't come back after two weeks, two weeks, then you will have to restart over your entire student teaching experience and pay for another whole semester of student teaching, which is one of the most expensive semesters when you're getting your teaching certificate. Disgusting. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And so I am going to, I'm going in my maternity clothes because my husband is an early, like, second-year teacher, and I'm student teaching. We have no money, none, zero. And so I can't afford all brand-new clothes, which I couldn't fit into two weeks after being pregnant. I gained 63 pounds with my son. So I had to wear my maternity clothes to teach in and had several people ask me when I was due until I decided that I was only going to wear my overalls because it was the only other thing that I was going to fit into and my husband's t-shirts underneath it every single day. And I didn't care what anybody said because it was better than having people ask me when I was due. Because they switched me. I was, I was at one so you, school, and I said, I can, at least cannot show back up at that school. I can't. 
So Semi put me to another school. No. And so I finished at a different school who didn't know, but it was at least better than having everybody know and trying to explain to kids right? Like, oh, but weren't you pregnant? Didn't you have right, your baby? Like, right. I just couldn't handle that. And so then I was meeting with yeah. strangers who from my presentation looked like I was pregnant. I would have to go to the bathroom several times a day and just sob. And I remember, yeah. it's so strange to think about this now, but I remember thinking like, if I can just get to the front door before I fall, really, really fall apart then I have made it. And so then the next thing would be like, okay, if I can get to my car before I fall apart and then just sit in my car. Oh, I've played those games, Autumn. I've played those games. Let me just put on my sunglasses really quick. Let me have to go to the bathroom again, even though I just got back from the bathroom two minutes ago. Let me remember something in my car. Just got to go grab something. And two weeks seem to be everybody's expiration date of tolerance anyway. So like my husband and I's um, wedding anniversary was about two weeks later and everybody around me, my family and friends kept saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really important that you celebrate your anniversary with your husband. Like how fucking stupid is that? So somebody had given us their cottage up north, which was beautiful and wonderful. And then like, I think somebody else bought us dinner at a really fancy restaurant. So I'm supposed to then get in a car, drive away, which I really felt like if I left my house that I was leaving my son, I felt like he was in the, mm. in my house. I felt like he was in my bedroom. And so I remember bawling and saying out loud, I'll be back. I'll be back. I love you so much. I'll be back. And I remember my husband just looking at me like, what is going on with my wife? And I remember it was so painful to leave. And, uh, and then I, I played the part for everybody. Like I did what everybody thought I should because because I wanted to make it easier for them or I was convinced that they were right, that if I just played by their rules, I would feel better. So I put on a nice outfit. I did my hair. I put on makeup and I went to a fancy dinner. Like I, and I smiled for a photo. I hate that fucking photo. Um, And I keep it on purpose instead of throwing it away to remind myself to never let anybody else define or design my life or my process. Thank you for saying that. That's so powerful. There's such a, you know, what you remind us of is it's, there's such a power to sort of perform into our okayness, mm-hmm. you know, into our happiness because we are a culture so obsessed with that. And again, the intentions of everyone in your family were maybe, I'm sure they believed, well, this will make autumn happy, you know, or this will help remove the pain. And it's such a reminder actually of, in my mind, it's, it's a re-traumatizing that we do when, when employers ask us to come back too early, as was the case with you. And, you know, I, I went back, um, after my employers asked me to come back after a couple, two weeks as well, back to work after my husband died and same, um, outings, um, to, to the routine. I actually, I love my girlfriends and, and they will, listen to this and know that I love them. But in addition to signing up a a weekly meal delivery, you know, that came to my house, which was lovely. And also we can talk about that Mm -hmm. food and grief is Mm -hmm. weird. Like I've never been so, but they had me in my entire life. I'm hungry. I know. I mean, thankfully that fed my daughter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it fed yeah. my daughter, which was good because I was, I don't even, I don't remember waking, brushing my no. teeth, showering, doing anything. But one of the things they did to, to the story that you were sharing about Phil and celebrating the anniversaries is they literally had a like a Google stock sign up of who was going to take Lisa out every Saturday night. I'm not Which, joking. again, so kind, so um, thoughtful. They so love I, you. But who so kind. do you want to go out every Saturday night? No, no. So I had a baby, you know, I, of course, then at this point had to pay a babysitter, you know, because now I'm a single parent to my seven year old at the time. And so every Saturday night, some version of the collection of, you know, eight or nine friends would take me out. We would sit at a restaurant. I would inevitably cry. Then I would inevitably apologize Mm -hmm. for crying Mm -hmm. and say how sorry I was for being sad and, you know, ruining their evening. Right. 
know, like the absurdity yes. of it all. And then they would say, no, it's okay. But also they would squirm and be uncomfortable because the waitress would come up and I'd be like heaving and bawling and blowing my nose. And, you know, so again, I think this, you know, maybe it makes me think circle back a little bit to the beginning of our conversation was just the ways in which our culture and our really if we don't break it, and I really hope conversations like this will start to break it, actually re-traumatize the grief, which is honestly a very natural, in a way, beautiful, I know it's a weird Mm -hmm. word, thing. Like, we should be grieving. Grief is because we lost something that we loved. And so our ways of hurrying back to work and performing, being happy and getting into routine and moving on, right. quote unquote, um, I will shove that word down that phrase down anybody's throat who yep. says it to me, um, actually doesn't allow us to hold space for the real beauty, you know, and gift of grief. And so I think, though I hate that that happened to you, I appreciate you sharing that story because I think it happens so often, and again, sometimes for really cruel, neglectful um, mm-hmm. policy purposes, as in it was the case with the university yeah. for you, and sometimes just out of not knowing, you know, like my friends or like my bosses who called me up and said, like, we had a lot of people leave um, the organization and we really need a senior leader back, you know, on deck. No, Can you, you come back? And the thing was, I was in right. such shock, you know, like you said, right. I just was like, um, okay, I don't, yeah, my daughter's going back to school. I guess I'll go back right. to work. You know, it was right at, you know, my husband died middle, middle of August. So we, you know, we're kind of getting back into the yeah. school year. So yeah, I think, I think that cultural influence is so, so huge. Um, and that actually reminds me of something you and I also have talked about, and that is the way in which, in general, death brings about so much guilt mm-hmm. and shame and yep. blame, regardless of kind of how the death happened. Can you tell me, and you alluded to that earlier, especially as a pregnant mom and the responsibility on growing this baby in your body, culturally, from your family, and even from your own mind, we're you were, I presume, feeling a lot of sort of responsibility. Can you tell tell me a little bit about what that, that experience was for you and, and maybe kind of leading that early experience, but tying it to sort of what mm-hmm. you know now, looking back, yeah, I mean, you know, like what has been the evolution of your understanding? Well, I wish there. Brene Brown was around when, I, when Zion died I and could have said what, yeah. what she had said and I had heard and it made absolute sense to me. So she said that guilt is that I've made a mistake or I've done something wrong or bad. And that shame is I am a mistake. I am something wrong or bad. And so for me, the guilt was, as I had said earlier, I must have done something wrong. Um, And the guilt also came with, oh, shit, I have a blood clotting disorder, which ended up clotting his umbilical cord, which I found out through his autopsy, called uh, thrombophilia. And I, so my body did something. I am the one who killed my baby, right? Shame was, and that's the shame mm-hmm. part, right? So I killed my baby. I'm the one who's responsible for that. So guilt was, as oh, man. Like, I must have made some kind of mistake. And the shame was, it was like, you are the mistake. Your son would have lived had he been born to any other mother. And there was shame in my husband would have never had to have grieved the loss of a son had he married and had a child with any other woman. And so the other part of the shame came with, and again, I want to just preface this, that I had said I was raised Irish Catholic. Um, that I deserve this because I'm a bad person. So I remember Mm. like interrogating my life story and trying to take inventory of all the bad things I had ever done in my life and thought, oh, you deserve this because you're a bad person. And were you able to articulate that at the time or were those all thoughts that were just swirling and held only in the your The only head? thing I was able to articulate... Like, was that something you could share? The only thing I could articulate a hundred times and nobody could talk me out of it because it was true is that I killed my baby, that my body killed my baby. 
And so, and so you were saying this to your mom or or Phil or or to everybody Mm -hmm. who would listen. My friends. Nearing helpful in that, or absolutely don't do. Just no, and I will say, yeah, didn't really matter their reaction. Here we are. He would have been eighteen pretty soon, and uh, I was talking in therapy two months ago, and I said, you know, well, my body killed my baby, I killed my baby, I killed my son, I killed Zion. And my therapist just said, oh, Autumn, right? Like, we need to, we need to unpack that. We need to, I need to hold that for you. And we need to, we need to be with this for a little while. And it still brings me such great pain, such great pain. Autumn shared, she is now working on truly experiencing and expressing the pain and emotion of that loss of Zion nearly 18 years ago. She shares with us next the common ways in which culture discouraged her and many of us from claiming our grief and that harm that the denial can cause. In this pain that I experience and I'm feeling so heavily right now, is I, it has only been recently that I have allowed myself to let the tears come, to let the pain come, because I was convinced by other people that my pain was too big for a baby that had never really lived outside of my body anyway. And so my grief was Mm. uh, dramatic, overly dramatic, um, unwarranted. Um, I had a friend who had said, when I had mentioned Zion's birthday was coming up and it was his first year. um, And she said, Oh, Autumn, it's, it's not a birthday. He wasn't born alive. You mean his anniversary. And I didn't have the wherewithal to say, no, I mean his birthday because I'm the one who's making the rules. This is my contract and relationship between myself and my son. If whatever I say is what's going on. And instead I thought, oh God, Absolutely. oh God, she's right. It's an, and I called his birthday an anniversary for over 10 years. And uh, I didn't put his picture out for a long time because... I thought it would be really painful for people to see instead of realizing that I needed his picture out because that would alleviate my pain. And if I was experiencing pain from seeing his photo, it was good pain. The dirty pain came from holding him as a secret. The good pain came from experiencing grief and crying because I love him so much and I was authentic. And doing yeah, it out in the open. In whatever yeah. relationship I wanted to have with my own grief and my own son, my own way. Autumn describes such a powerful way of thinking about how we deal with our pain. I asked Autumn how she's changed the way she expresses her pain and what the limitations have been. She reminds us how unbearable it is for others to hold our pain, even the people closest to us. Sometimes, especially the people closest to us. What did it feel like to when you finally said, no, I'm having Zion's picture out in the house and I'm naming this day Zion's birthday and not mm-hmm. anniversary? What was that shift for you in your grief? How would you describe well, by, well, that I will, I will say by 10 years, I felt pretty alone. Right, like the phone call stop, people remembering his birthday slows down to a halt. There, there are people who have stood by me and have never forgotten to say his name outside of his birthday. Right, so like I have my sister right. who honors and names him anytime she thinks of him. Or, I mean, um, my mom and dad do the same. My husband does it the same. But I will say. When I decided to take back my relationship with my son and my own relationship with my grief, it was very, very isolating. So I didn't have the same kind of audience and uh, people in waiting to hold me through that process. And so it felt very alone. Like I remember doing that by myself in my own house. I didn't talk to my husband about it because I was so sick of trying to be hold his grief, I remember him so clearly saying to my mom, and I overheard him, he said, I feel like I not only lost my son, but I lost my wife too. 
And my mom said to him, because you did. And I knew in that moment that my husband could not hold my grief. And so I, being conditioned as a woman in this society and in this culture, decided that I would have to manage my own grief and show up in a way to not exasperate his grief and become his wife again. Because that is what he was hoping for. He was hoping that I would go. And he even said really hurtful things like, well, I just want you to, I want the, the woman I married or I want, I can't wait for yep, the old, old autumn. autumn for us to get back to the way we were. And I remember in a, in a fight before we separated and I spent some time in California because I needed to not be around his expectations of me was she's dead. She doesn't exist anymore. She's dead. She died with our son. And, um, mm. and I asked him to figure out if he could keep, if he could hold that, if you can't handle that and you can't be with me as I put back this like broken shards with like blue and tape and figure out who I've become past this moment, then I don't want to do right. this with you because you're in the way of me healing. And amazingly enough, wow. We had a conversation while I was in California that I understood that he was willing and capable of just witnessing my process, even if he couldn't support it because he didn't know how. And that's all I really needed as I just needed everybody to get out of my way because everyone was in my way of healing. Because they were trying to make it yes. okay and and do it the yeah. way they think it sh- quote unquote yeah. should be done, and in in and in the process actually preventing you from doing taking the journey you knew you yeah. needed so to I, take. You know, I go back to the beginning of the story as my beautiful, wonderful parents who told me just go be with your friend, right? Um, I know that that's what they wanted to do with me, and they did. They were with me, but I was their daughter, and I cannot imagine watching my own daughter. I now have a 16-year-old daughter. I cannot imagine watching that kind of excruciating pain for her and not try to fix it. Um, And while grieving your grandson, right? And I will say that the only person who was ever able to hold all of that and fight with people on my behalf, always, 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 was my sister. She always defended me, and she never pushed me. And she would fight against people in front of me on my behalf. She she wasn't my ally. She was my advocate. She was my co-conspirator in my, my grief process. What an incredible mm-hmm. gift. And isn't it some... T- I can imagine she's your sister, so you might have expected no, that. No, I didn't. One thing I've discovered along the way, and, and I know your sister a little bit too, but one thing I've discovered along the way is it is surprising who shows up in your life, whether they were there you know, for the time of the loss or, or you became friends as you and mm-hmm. I have become since since those losses, it is so interesting and surprising and curious to me who is actually able and capable to show up and be your co-conspirator and to be your advocate and to to be able to hold space mm-hmm. for you, you know, and just help clear the yeah. path so that you can travel your grief journey. It's really surprising, isn't it, who, who that turns out to be? Sometimes it's, it's not who you might yeah. have expected. Oh, absolutely. And I will say, and this is a totally different podcast, is when I became chronically ill with Lyme disease, it was my sister who showed back up in the exact same way and fought with everyone of like, no, she's not going back to work. No, I don't care about where you're going to get the money yeah. from. No, she needs to go to a doctor. No, if that doctor doesn't have the answer, she's going to go to a different doctor. Like making sure everybody that putting their and imposing their ideas, needs, wants on me. And she showed up in exactly the same way while I grieved the loss of my life from chronic illness. So there is something about people who, who just... Uh, embody a sense of grace and compassion that cannot be taught. No, 
I absolutely agree that. And, and, you know, you said this, this is a story for another podcast. And I really do think, as you and I have talked so much before, um, that there's the word grief needs a broadening definition. It's such, it's so much more expansive than we can even think about. And certainly I'm interviewing folks who have had catastrophic injury and chronic illness because really grief is a tearing up of a manuscript of the story of our lives. And sometimes that's because of a death, but sometimes that's because of a chronic illness that has sort of upended the trajectory or the sort of the path of the story that you were writing about your life. Um, so I certainly will be revisiting that possibly with you as a guest and others. Um, and actually possibly my mother who I attended to as she navigated, um, a chronic illness in my youth. So no, I think that's a really important piece is that you're really trying to rebuild a story. And so however that grief shows up in your life to really savor those people um, to figure out how they do that. I think one interesting thing that comes as a result of having been in the place that you were on the receiving end of that kind of advocacy from your sister is for me, having met you very soon after I lost my husband, whether you had that skill or not before, you showed up for me in the exact same way you are talking about your sister showing up for you. And so I think there's something really beautifully, I hope, contagious about having been on the receiving end of that kind of care and loving and patient bearing of witness that then infuses us with that ability to then show up in other people's lives with that same care and compassion and attention. Yeah. So you you are paying that forward already. Thank you. Um, yeah, I learned, I learned, and it's, it's interesting too, is, is I learned through a lot of horrible experiences, what to do and what not to do, uh, as well as what to say and what not to say. And so for all of the mothers out there who have, whose children have died, uh, or the people who have women in their lives, whose children have died, I want to say, um, I hear you when you share with me your pain when people say stupid-ass shit like, well, don't worry, you'll have another one. Or it's not like he was alive. If he was three or something, that would have been way worse. Or uh, I had a friend, one of my dear friends that I met in my infant um, loss support group who had the audacity and tactlessness to say, well, your pipes are clean. You know you can get pregnant now, so the next time it'll be super easy. Right? I mean, just please. Oh, my yeah. word. So please, please, I am begging people to be quiet and be still and just show up and hold somebody's pain as you hold their hand. If you can't, don't, like, I, I, people who told me he was in a better place. Really? Like, how insulting. Oh, I heard that so, so my, much. My son oh. is in a better place than with his own mother. Like, that was, I felt like you, I wish you would have slapped me in the face rather than said something like that because that actual physical sting would have been less impactful than the emotional sting. And then for me, I was in such shock that somebody would say that that I didn't have the wherewithal to tell them to go fuck themselves. Uh, instead, I just took it every exactly. single time somebody said some of the most awful things to me in the whole world. I took it because I was so limp with fatigue of grief that I couldn't even react. And so I wore it. So Absolutely. people have to understand that, that I, you added a, a weight, like a heavy blanket. And so you made me heavier. You made me more tired. And so please, I'm begging people who listen to this to show up silently, if nothing else. And you can say, how can I support you? I love you so much. Autumn, thank you so much for being authentic and courageous and vulnerable and compassionate and sharing your story, your experiences, your wisdom your lessons learned. I really appreciate you being with us today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. 
Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate you giving me the time to share my story and all my hopes that we will stop suffering in silence as women who have lost our children and be able to have other people show up for us in a way that is authentically honoring what we need. Uh, This is a really, really quiet story. And I'm so glad that it now has the platform it deserves. Thank you so much, Autumn. Thank you, Lisa. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. If you have experienced this type of loss, I want you to know I see your pain and I'm holding you in my heart. If you know someone in your life who has experienced this type of loss, let's be reminded by Autumn's story that their pain is real. There's nothing you can say or do to fix it, but you need to be there for them so they don't feel so alone. So just show up, shut up, and just be. I'm so grateful to Autumn for being so open, honest, and vulnerable in sharing the story of the stillbirth of her son, Zion. His birthday was this month. He would have been 18. I want to thank you for joining me once again for another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. If you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcast, please give us a rating and leave a review. If you know someone who needs to hear this story or any of the stories on this series, please share this podcast with them. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. Thanks for listening.